Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. I am recording this for the second time today because I have no idea what happened. As I record, I'm constantly pausing, going back. If I stumble over my words, I re-record over it. So I heard myself throughout the entire one hour and 10 minute episodes on the recording. And then when I converted it to an MP4, apparently the sound didn't convert along with it. So here we go again. Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. This is the fourth and final part of our update series on the University of Idaho murders. Before we get started, I have a few notes about the show. You know this is an independent podcast, and I depend on your help to keep this thing chugging along, and there are a number of ways that you can support the show. You can leave a nice rating and a review on whatever platforms you listen to your shows on. Even if you leave a one-star review, if it's funny and clever, I will slap it on a t-shirt and profit off of it. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you're feeling particularly generous and have a dollar or two to spare each month, you can join Patreon where you will be able to indulge in hours and hours of exclusive content, starting at the basement bargain price of just $1 a month. If a subscription isn't something that you are interested in, but you would still like to help support the show, you can do so through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I would like to thank Letta Lou, Jennifer C., Susan B., Rochelle P., Danette W., Lana T., Brenda L., Dolores A., Rhonda L., Nicole S., and Lori P. for joining Patreon or raising your pledge. I will say this. Now that I have finished the series, I think I'm going to take a short break, not because it's the 4th of July, because I'm not doing anything or going anywhere in this heat. It's 111 degrees today. It's supposed to be 113 tomorrow, but because I think I'm going to sit down and get all of the thank you cards that I've been neglecting to send out to patrons for quite some time now, I'm not saying that there won't be an episode, but I do need to get those cards out to you. I do it all by myself. Everyone gets a personal handwritten thank you card from me, so it's a little time consuming, but I love doing it. It is one of my goals that I want to complete while I have this downtime from the day job. Okay, now that I got all of that out of the way, let's get started on this fourth and final part. This is episode 269, The Tale of a Massacre in Moscow, The University of Idaho Murders. In the last part, part three, we left off talking about the time immediately following the killings of Kaylee, Madison, Zana, and Ethan, what the killer may have been doing and thinking as he drove away from the crime scene. Because of his phone and surveillance cameras, investigators were able to track his movements minute by minute. We're going to pick it up from there, starting with what the suspect did with his phone right after the killings. Because, you know, he just couldn't leave his phone at home when going to do murder. The killer made a pedestrian mistake. These days, when people think that turning off their phone means that they're innocent of all charges. If anything, nowadays, turning off your phone an hour before a murder and then turning it back on again is more illustrative of guilt rather than innocence. They don't teach you that in Criminology 101, I guess. 
the suspect turned his phone off at around 2.30 in the morning. Then, just 28 minutes after the white Elantra was captured on video leaving the area near the King Road house, a phone registered to the suspect suddenly came back to life. So stupid, right? But you know, in this guy's mind, he never thought for a second that he was going to get caught. So he thinks he's a step ahead of everybody, outsmarting these small town cops by turning off his phone. Because that'll really stump them. Because nobody's ever thought of that before, right? And this idiot only waited 28 minutes. Even the jolly red giant Alec Murdoch had a sliver of common sense when he left his phone on and in the main house of the family hunting property when he went out to the dog kennels to go and shoot his wife and his son because his cover story was going to be that he was napping. And I'm not saying that Alec Murdoch created the blueprint for the perfect murder because clearly he messed up a lot of things too. But it isn't without a lack of trying. The suspect in the Idaho murders? What was his cover story supposed to be? Oh, I was just driving around back and forth between eastern Washington and western Idaho at four in the morning, doing nothing suspicious at all, but turning my phone on and off along the way just cause, no reason. Yeah, I'm sure that'll fly in court later on this year. A little more than an hour after the murders, the white Elantra was captured on video cameras back in the city of Pullman, Washington at 5.27 a.m. So he's back home. And then what? What is he possibly doing now? Is he checking Google? Looking at his cell phone? Looking for news? Wanting to see if what he did is splashed across the headlines? Yeah, not so fast. Remember, the 911 call didn't come in for eight hours. So the suspect was sitting there waiting for the whole world to find out what he had done. And it just wasn't happening. So what does this numbnuts do? He goes back to the scene of the crime. Such a cliche this PhD criminology student is. How many countless times have we heard it said? They always come back to the scene of the crime. And it's exactly what he did. Phone records indicated that about four hours after the murders, the suspect's phone was connecting to the same tower that the occupants of the King Road house would have been connected to. And he stayed connected to that tower for nearly 10 minutes. The experts will say that these types of people, like the suspect in this case, return to the scene of the crime in order to keep living the fantasy that they created for themselves when they committed the crime to be close to the location again, where he was able to, for the first time in his pathetic little life, have complete control over someone else, or in this case, multiple someone else's. That may be the case for most killers based on the research and the interviews that these experts have conducted in their work, but I suggested in the previous episode that the suspect in this case went back because he was not hearing the news of the killings. I think he went there to see if there were police and ambulances and crime scene tape surrounding the house. And there wasn't. 
It was nine in the morning on a Sunday in an off-campus home. Nobody's up at 9 a.m. The suspect was sitting at his apartment on the edge of his seat waiting. And I wouldn't be surprised if when investigators go through his electronic devices that they find he was searching for news of the murders during those hours following the killings. And all the suspect was getting was crickets. He had to go and see for himself. And at 9 a.m., the 911 call was still three hours away. One of the disturbing things the expert said on Dateline is that the suspect forever connected himself to these victims and their story. And that is the way that he will control them, their lives, their families, their loved ones, and their narratives for all of time. But you know what, dreamers? That doesn't have to be the case if we refuse to speak his name. Within a couple hours of that 911 call that came in reporting an unresponsive person is when the news of what happened began trickling out of Moscow, Idaho. The parents of four young people started finding law enforcement officers knocking on their front doors to deliver to them the worst news a parent could ever receive. And from there, the community became filled not just with grief, but with a tremendous amount of fear that there was someone among them that did something like this. You were looking at the person next to you, and you just didn't know. Nobody had any idea. This killer was nameless, faceless, anonymous, but at the same time, he was everywhere. While the University of Idaho and the city of Moscow were coming to grips with what happened at the King Road house, the suspect was back in class on Monday morning, like business as usual. By this time, he had a couple of talkings to about his conduct and his behavior with the professor for whom he was a teaching assistant. One student had told Dateline that the suspect was a real big prick about the way he graded their papers. But when he got back after that weekend, the suspect kind of eased up on all the harsh grading, which would make sense if you think about it. If the suspect did what we're basically certain that he did, which is murder four people, then the idea of these murders being this massive release of pent-up rage and frustration then it would make sense that he would go back to work all happy-go-skippy, giving out A-pluses to everybody. What a piece of work this guy was and is. He is a miserable excuse for a human being, and his life is such a pile of garbage that he has to go and try and make everybody else feel like garbage right along with him. And then on the weekend, he goes and murders four people and comes back to work on Monday like a brand new man, as if he had just come off a super relaxing, rejuvenating couple of days off. That's just completely psychopathic. That student mentioned in part two who spoke to Keith Morrison, his name was Hayden Stinchfield. He said that after the murders, the suspect was giving everyone 100% and stopped leaving overly critical notes on their work. 
As far as the investigation in the days and weeks following the murders, it appeared to be painfully bleak. People were under the impression that the Moscow Police Department weren't making any progress on the case. And I can kind of understand that thinking, you know, looking back on the Delphi murders, for example, from 2017, it took more than five years for there to be an arrest. And while I was pretty excited and optimistic about it when it happened last October, when we broke down the probable cause affidavit, however, and I finally broke my silence on the case, it actually wasn't looking all that promising. That was a case where the city of Delphi was so desperate for answers and there just weren't any to be had for a very long time. And the internet had been running crazy with theories and conjecture pretty much those entire five years, which was basically what was happening in Moscow as well in the wake of these four murders. And, you know, that was a very real fear in Moscow for this case to grow cold. But it wasn't just the Moscow Police Department that was handling this case. The Idaho State Police and the FBI stepped in to lend their resources to the investigation. And one of the things that investigators said very early on was that they felt as if the community was safe, that there was no longer any imminent danger. But nobody was really believing it because they didn't have a suspect in custody in under 60 minutes like they do on TV. So how was it that law enforcement could confidently say that there was no danger to the community immediately after four people were brutally slaughtered in their home? Well, mainly because after the killings, there was an eight-hour period of silence. If the killer was on a crime spree on this campus or around the campus, he would have kept going while no police were coming for him. All was quiet after the four were killed. And because of that, law enforcement were fairly confident that these killings were an isolated, one-off event. If the suspect or if the killer was going to murder some more, he would have had plenty of time to do so in that eight-hour window. There simply wasn't a madman wielding a knife, running around campus, hiding in the shadows, waiting to jump out at you and stab you. He did these four killings, and he was in the wind. That's why investigators told the college students and the city of Moscow that they were safe. But nobody believed them, and I have to admit, I kind of sort of didn't believe it either. Another one of the few things that authorities did reveal to the public was that the weapon used in the killings was a fixed blade knife. But from the most part, early on, authorities were keeping pretty tight-lipped about stuff. Even though they were trying to hold press conferences in order to provide some measure of contact with the public, but the people of Moscow and the families of the victims were being very critical about the police investigation. They wanted information, they wanted answers, and most importantly, they wanted a suspect in custody. I think most of us, 
And by us, I'm talking about you and me and people like us who are in this podcasting space, understand the need by now when it comes to keeping the amount of information being leaked to the public to a very bare minimum, especially when there's a crazed knife-wielding maniac killer on the loose somewhere in the community. I know that there is fear. I was afraid. But this is why we, as a community, have to take precautions. And dreamers, I don't want this to be taken the wrong way. And I'm in no way blaming anybody else but the killer in this case. And you know how I feel about this guy. But in the Dayline episode, Kaylee's parents, when they spoke to Keith Morrison, they pointed out that their daughter and her best friend, Madison, did everything right that night. They went out together. They stayed together. They got a safe ride home from a program organized by the university for situations just like this. However, none of that prevented that killer from letting himself into their house through an unlocked sliding glass door. The wrong thing is everything that this killer did. He should have never come into their home, and he absolutely should never have done this. But that's why we take the precautions that we take. And I guess perhaps when you have five young people living on their own for the very first time, in a busy house, in what you believe to be a safe neighborhood, I can see these very trusting people developing a false sense of security and maybe leaving that back sliding glass door unlocked accidentally. You know, there's even a chance that the killer, in a previous visit that he made to the house, managed to lift a set of house keys. That seems to be a pretty bold move, especially for a guy like this suspect, but it certainly isn't unheard of. You don't just lock your doors, you guard your keys. I think the most likely scenario is that the sliding glass door was left unlocked. And maybe the killer knew that in all of his research and reconnaissance. It would have been a massive stroke of luck for the kids in the house to always secure that sliding glass door and for the one night when the killer decided that he was going to do these murders, someone just happened to have accidentally left it open. Anyway, back to what I was saying. It seems like the best thing to do is to just keep our opinions to ourselves while the investigation is still ongoing. Unless maybe you're some kind of expert on something and have something worthwhile to say, which is definitely not the case here with this podcast, not with this host here. So we tend to keep quiet, or at least I do, until we get some good facts about a case. And then we bring the opinions and the judginess. It's the reasons why in the biggest cases that we've had break in the last couple of years, such as Gabby Petito, Lori Vallow, and Chad Daybell, the Uvalde school shooting, the Delphi murders, and now the University of Idaho murders, I was waiting until the official documents were released before I started talking about it. Because until I have court documents or the reports, I really don't have very much to work with. I mean, come on, look at all the priceless information 
that came out about the suspect in this case after he was arrested. For like six weeks, the police were painfully quiet about all the details. And come to find out all along, pretty much from day one, they had that knife sheath. The public never knew that. So at any time during those six weeks, if I would have put out any content about this case, not knowing anything about the suspect, we didn't know who he was, we had no idea how stupid a PhD student could actually be, we didn't know how ugly his face was, we didn't know that he drove his own car to the crime scene and used his own cell phone along the way, and most importantly, not knowing how Butterfingers left his knife sheath there with his DNA all over it. Yeah, a.k.a. the murder cooties that we all love so much. He left it there. I mean, that's so much good stuff to work with. All of the material that was available any earlier, if I would have done it any sooner, it wouldn't have been as interesting without this suspect's utter buffoonery. There's no point in me doing a story until we have the good facts, even if we sometimes get impatient, because I do. I want to talk about stuff. In the end, it works out better for us because all we want is two things, the truth and for guys like this suspect to continue to be dumbasses so we can repeatedly point out those facts. I read this really great article on the Atlantic.com written by Megan Garber back in January, about a week or so after the suspect was arrested. And I wanted to share it with you because I think she told what was happening on the internet really well. So it was titled, A Grim New Low for Internet Sleuthing. It reads, On November 13th, 2022, four students from the University of Idaho, Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonsalves, Zana Kernodal, and Madison Mogan were found dead in the house that the latter three rented near campus. Each had been stabbed seemingly in bed. Two other students lived in the house and were apparently in their rooms that night. They were unharmed. From the public standpoint, the case had few leads at first. An unknown assailant, an unknown motive. Law enforcement officials in the college town of Moscow, Idaho, initially offered the public little information about the evidence that they were gathering in their investigation. Into that void came a frenzy of public speculation and soon enough, public accusation. The familiar alchemy set in. The real crime, as the weeks dragged on, became a quote-unquote true crime. The murders, as people discussed them and analyzed them and competed to solve them, became a grim form of entertainment. Baseless rumors spread online as people with no connection to the slain students tried to make sense of a senseless crime. They blamed not only an assailant or several of them, but also drugs, vengeance, bullying, and more. They dove deep into the students' TikToks and Instagram feeds, looking for clues. They scripted the students' lives and their deaths. And as the weeks passed, their numbers grew. A Facebook group dedicated to discussing and speculating about the murders currently has more than 230,000 members. 
subreddits dedicated to the same have more than 100,000 members each. Their posts range from the minutely forensic analyses of autopsy reports and the knife allegedly used in the killings to the broadly theoretical. One post, riffing on a blind item from Demois, wondered aloud whether Kim Kardashian would get involved in the case. Many of the members who offered their theories and who would continue to offer them likely mean well. Amateur sleuths help reveal the identities of some of the Golden State serial killers' victims. The mother of Gabby Petito, who was killed in 2021, has praised the many people who, scouring social media for clues, played a crucial role in solving her daughter's murder. But the search for crowdsourced justice in the Idaho murders tended to thwart justice itself. It complicated the on-the-ground investigation, and as groundless accusations flew, it created more victims. With remarkable ease, some people's pain became other people's puzzle. Theories about the murders read sometimes as fan fiction. On TikTok and Facebook and YouTube, people pointed fingers based on strong hunches and seemingly no evidence, accusations that were then amplified by others. Soon enough, the fantastical theories crept into real people's lives. Posters turned on the two housemates who had been unharmed. They, quote, must know more than they're letting on, one video caption put it. They turned their gaze towards the owner of the food truck that two of the students had stopped at before going home the night of the killings. Possible stalker, one sleuth wondered. Law enforcement officers investigating the real crime as the true one played out online had eliminated both the housemates and the truck owner, among others, as suspects. The Moscow Police Department's website now has a quote-unquote rumor control section, a remarkable modification of its frequently asked questions section that tries to combat some of the swirling misinformation. Among the questions the section answers are, who is not believed to be involved? What resources are being used to investigate this murder? And are reports of skinned dogs related to the murder? They are not. Everyone wants something crazier out of this. It has to get crazier. One of the sleuths who provided information about Gabby Petito's case in a documentary that premiered months after her murder. The key word in this woman's comment, it's not crazier, it's wants. The amateur detectives in the Petito case may certainly have been motivated by generosity and outrage and a drive for justice, but they were also gaining from their participation in it, followers, like, and the fickle currencies of the content economy. The speculation about the Idaho murders took on a similar frenzy. To read through all the theories, or to scroll, or to watch, is to sense appropriation at play. People were not merely trying to solve the case, but trying to claim the tragedy for themselves. Please stop turning these poor kids into your identity, a recent Reddit post pleaded. It was upvoted more than 2,200 times. The baseless, at times fanciful speculation continued despite investigators' repeated attempts to quell it. The rumors were adding chaos to their investigation, they said. 
they were bringing more trauma to people who were in mourning. In their attempts to fact-check the innuendo, official investigators have faced the most powerful of foes, the trending topic. The murders, having very particular types of victims, and especially horrifying circumstances, quickly became matters of national interest. That made them also matters of incentive for content creators. On YouTube, Vanity Fair's Delia Kai pointed out the top news clips that address the murders have more than 1 million views each. On TikTok, videos claiming a connection to the murders, hashtag Idaho case, hashtag Idaho case update, hashtag Idaho killer, now have in total more than 400 million views. These true crime takes on the real crime have no obligation to fairness or evidence. Content in the eyeball economy is tautological. I didn't know what tautological meant, but what the author of this article is saying is that content in this situation is making the assertion that everything that they're saying is true in every possible interpretation that every creator is putting out there. When attention is its own reward, the tantalizing take is more valuable than the true one. This is the dull tragedy underlying the acute one. The murders did numbers. As strangers who wrote themselves into the story, competing, as one expert put it, to make a connection or uncover a secret, often for the likes, shares, clicks, and attention, they created more grief. Some of the victims' friends and classmates, as they mourned, began receiving death threats. People posted the names and pictures of those who knew the victims, accusing them of some vague connection to the crime. The posters typically kept themselves anonymous. A YouTuber analyzed the quote-unquote red flags allegedly represented by Kaylee Gonsalves' ex-boyfriend, resulting in his aunt telling the New York Post a compounded trauma. Mourning the loss of the woman that he had dated for five years, and reckoning with the fact that half of America assumed him to be the murderer. He has been ruled out as a suspect by law enforcement, but the speculation will remain, spun by posters armed with hunches and made permanent into the archives. And so, in the name of finding justice, many have lost their humanity. They treated people as characters in a procedural that aired not on their TVs, but on their phones and computers. CSI or Law and Order playing out in real time. And they treated the characters, in turn, as texts to be read and analyzed and vilified. People eager to make big fines scoured the obituaries of other University of Idaho students who had died in recent years, attempting to connect their deaths to the murders. The father of one of those students asked them to stop trying to link his own child's death to these other dead kids. But the sleuths kept going, even when on December 30th, police arrested the suspect, a 28-year-old doctoral student at Washington State, just down the road from Moscow. The student had been studying criminology. Charged with four counts of murder and one count of burglary, he is currently being held in Idaho without bail. 
His counsel has said that he is, quote, eager to be exonerated. Investigators have cited cell phone data, surveillance footage, and DNA samples among the evidence that they will use, they say, to connect him to the crime. Earlier this week, authorities prosecuting the case released a 49-page document detailing the facts gathered over the weeks of investigation. Some of the information resembles the internet theories, but much of it does not. The crime procedural is a uniquely formulaic genre. One of its essential elements is the cathartic conclusion, the big reveal, the shocking twist. This story will very likely have no such payoff for the audience. The suspect will be prosecuted, and he may or may not be found guilty. Prosecutors will rely on evidence, detailed and dull, to make their case. Meanwhile, the speculation will continue, despite the arrest, and despite the harm done to people who, authorities have said, have no connection to this case. Shortly after the murders, the TikToker Ashley Gouillard claimed to have solved the case. The killings were ordered, she announced, by a history professor at the University of Idaho. In fact, by the chair of its history department. Gouillard shared a picture of the professor in videos that have been viewed more than two million times. Gouillard says that she gleaned her conclusion from a deck of tarot cards and has held firm to her presumption of the professor's guilt, though the official investigation has ruled her out as a suspect. But Gouillard has been defiant in the face of the facts. She will keep on, she told the Washington Post, even now that the professor has sought a defamation lawsuit against her, citing harm to her reputation and fears for her safety. I'm going to keep posting, Gouillard said. I am not taking anything down. I will post a link to that article because I really liked it a lot and it made some really valid points. So all along, while the community and the internet and even some of the victims' families were being critical of the Moscow Police Department, they had that knife sheath in their possession. They were running it through tests and they got some DNA. They were pouring over hours and hours of surveillance video and they identified that white Hyundai Elantra. They had this guy in their sights. They just needed to get that DNA sample to make that match in order to get the probable cause for an arrest. We didn't know about the knife sheath. Police knew about it. They stood at that press conference knowing damn well in the back of their heads that they had it, but they weren't going to tell us about it because they knew there was one person out there that knew about that knife sheath. And it would be the person who did these killings. He knew it. And he realized at some point that he had lost it. And he also knew that they probably found it. And it is believed that the suspect made a post in a University of Idaho discussion group on Facebook using an alias and a profile picture that kind of sort of resembles him in order to discuss this. Why do we think it was a suspect? Because the post brought up the knife sheath a thing that the only people who knew about were the police and the killer. Now, we don't know for sure, for sure, that it was a suspect who posted these things about the knife sheath. And perhaps with some help from some techie experts, they might be able to link that Facebook account to the suspect. But for now, it's merely speculation that the suspect made this post. 
The profile name is Papa Roger. The post was made on November 30th, 17 days after the murders and a month before the arrest and a little bit more than a month before the details about the knife sheath became public knowledge. The post reads, Of the evidence released, the murder weapon has been consistent as a large fixed blade knife. This leads me to believe that they found the sheath. This evidence was released prior to the autopsies. Okay, so who's going to be able to jump to that conclusion? That is quite a leap. Nobody ever said anything like this except for this one single post. There was never a mention of a sheath anywhere until after the arrest. When I heard that the murder weapon was a fixed blade knife, which was early on, it never occurred to me that the weapon was identified because its sheath was found. The conclusion I would have jumped to if I was jumping to conclusions is that they either found the weapon itself at the crime scene or when the coroner arrived at the scene and took an initial look at the bodies that based on his or her experience, he or she was able to make a preliminary determination based on the wounds what the likely weapon may have been. The next question regarding this post is why? Why would the suspect write something like this? For me, the answer is quite simple. Psychopathological narcissist. The suspect has to be the smartest guy in the room. When he dropped that knife sheath, he tumbled all the way down to dumbest guy in the room. This was his way of redeeming himself by appearing to be the most brilliant person once again by coming up with this seemingly random far-fetched theory knowing that eventually it would turn out to indeed be true. This was also his way of appearing in the group to be steps ahead of the police because our public perception at the time was that police weren't making any progress and they didn't know what they were doing. It kind of lines up with what I said about the suspect pursuing his master's and his PhD in order to give himself this air of legitimacy and credibility that really he sorely lacked in all areas of his life. Credibility beyond that of even the average police officer or detective who doesn't necessarily need more than just a high school diploma or a GED to become a member of law enforcement. By making this post on Facebook, the suspect made himself appear to be pretty clever, the exact opposite of what he actually is. I've tried joining the group to see if the post was still up so I could look at the comments, but I haven't been accepted yet as I was writing this. But in an article on TMZ about this Facebook post, it said that other members in this Facebook group were so alarmed by it that they accused the original poster of talking like a serial killer. The TMZ article also had a screenshot of another post on Reddit that is believed by many to have been made by the suspect. In this post, whoever wrote it basically spelled out the way the crime was carried out. Also, before police theories became public knowledge. This post reads, Speculation. Killer parked behind the house. Approached property through tree line. Entered sliding door and left it open. Committed murders and exited sliding door. One knife according to coroner's statement. Time of murder approximately 3.20 to 3.40 a.m. According to car fleeing scene, 
and on camera on Highway 8, approximately 3.45 a.m. Vehicle left skid marks upon exit. Please see photos below for more information. A comment in the screenshot right below the post says, Dude is solving his own crime, psycho. Yeah, sounds about right. When Keith asked his expert, and by Keith, I mean Keith Morrison, because, you know, we're on a first name basis like that. When he asked his expert about this post and why would the suspect, why would he do something that may end up giving him away in the end, which in large part did contribute to investigators coming to believe that he was the one responsible for the murders, the expert said, you have an individual that had such a need for control, that egotistical drive, that they wouldn't be able to resist, even at the risk of their own incarceration. They would not be capable of controlling the desire to reach out to the world and say, ha ha, got you, I did this. It would only be nine days later that the suspect would have that second verbal altercation with the professor that he was working for, ultimately being the last straw this altercation would be, which would lead to his termination. Four days after that, the suspect was pulled over in Indiana with his dad on his way back home to Pennsylvania for the holidays. A little more than three weeks after the killings on December 7th, 2022, investigators released a little bit more information to the public about the case. This time they said that they were looking for a 2011 to 2013 white Hyundai Elantra. They would later expand the model years to 2010 to 2015, during which time the look of the car had not changed. I looked it up. The Moscow Police Department post on Facebook said, Moscow police are asking for the community's help. Detectives are interested in speaking with the occupant or occupants of a white 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra with an unknown license plate. Tips and leads had led investigators to look for additional information about a vehicle being in the immediate area of the King Street residence during the early morning hours of November 13th. Investigators believe that the occupant or occupants of this vehicle may have critical information to share regarding the case. The information regarding the Elantra stemmed from a video being pulled from a gas station in Moscow, about a mile away from the crime scene, capturing a video of the vehicle speeding by at 3.45 a.m. And with that, a nationwide white Hyundai Elantra hunt was underway. But nobody at the apartment where the suspect was living at the time was able to put it together before he left with his dad to head east for the winter in that very same white Hyundai Elantra. As mentioned previously, we know that the suspect was stopped twice in Indiana, both times for tailgating. Both times he was let off with a warning. The FBI denied orchestrating these stops, which is another thing that the internet went crazy about when we heard this news. They've said that while they were looking for a white Elantra, they had not zeroed in on that white Elantra just yet at the time that those traffic stops had taken place. The notion that investigators were trailing the suspect across the country on that drive apparently isn't true. What Dateline's rich sources of information said is that those traffic stops were Indiana authorities pulling his vehicle over based on his driving behaviors, 
as a part of their routine drug interdiction. In this case, the highway patrol officers worked on identifying the patterns and behaviors of drivers on the roads and identify suspicious goings on. So if the suspect did what we believed him to have done, four murders that is, then his driving is probably going to be somewhat erratic and that would be apparent to the officers who were looking for erratic driving, which is why he got pulled over twice. The highway patrol officers gave the suspect a cursory once over and made the decision, despite his stupid ugly face, that his stupid ugly driving had nothing to do with drug trafficking. Okay, so since I last talked about that post on Facebook, I did get accepted to the University of Idaho Murders Facebook discussion group. And I just kind of skimmed through everything. And whoever Papa Roger was, he's been removed from the group. And I believe his posts were as well. But the one thing that I did want to share with you was that there was a post that had a whole bunch of screenshots of Papa Roger's posts that he had made in the group. It was a series of posts asking questions or making suggestions about the case around starting around the first week of December, well, November 30th, which is when that post about the knife sheath was made. And in the weeks following that, all the way up until I believe around December 22nd was his last post. Assuming the suspect and Papa Roger are one and the same, let's go through them and let's see what we think about this series of Facebook posts in the Idaho Murders discussion group. So like I said, on November 30th, Papa Roger made the post about the knife sheath. Also on November 30th, he posted, I believe the killer or killers came from the high side of the house. They were covered in blood after the attack. Oh, so you think? I wonder if he's really seriously talking about himself. If this was the actual killer, he's admitting that as he was leaving, he left through the side of the house that was built into that hill and that he was covered in blood. On December 1st at 10.45 p.m., Papa Roger posted a picture of investigators near the crime scene tape that was surrounding the property and said, this is on the high side of the house. They found evidence here. It's likely blood dripping from the killer or killers. Either they fled through this area or they were parked there. This being the most strategic entrance point into the house. It shows planning. On December 5th, Papa Roger posted images of the layout of the floors of the home and also a picture that was captured of some blood from the crime scene dripping down the side of the outside of the house. And he wrote, Based on evidence, this is where I believe Xana was found. So what he's saying is Xana is dead inside the house and the blood that's running down the stucco on the outside is coming from her. Another thing that sounds like the killer would know. You've got four dead people in there. How would he know that that's Xana's blood running down the side of the house? Maybe because he did it? On December 8th, the day the Moscow police posted about the white Hyundai Elantra, at 9 p.m., Papa Roger wrote, Why did the killer choose a knife as the weapon of choice? At 9.12 p.m., he posted, Did the killer stop at four victims out of exhaustion, convenience, or lack of knowledge? At 9.20 p.m., he posted, In your opinion, 
Did the killer shower at the crime scene afterwards? At 9.30 p.m., he posted, Why do we think the dog was spared? At 9.43 p.m., he posted, What do we think is the entrance point to the crime scene? At 9.58 p.m., Why did the killer choose that house over all the others in the area? At 10.02 p.m., he posted a screenshot of the Google Trends interest in the King Road house and wrote, Google Trends show the search history for the house by date. Lots of Thursday activity. What do we think? That would be November 10th, three days before the murders. The screenshot that Papa Roger posted started in August, where there are the highest spikes in interest in the house, probably because people were looking for a place to rent for the beginning of the fall semester. Then there were two small spikes on and after August 30th, four spikes in September, and two more spikes in October. There's a pretty sustained spike at the end of October, and two more spikes before November 10th. I bet anything that those spikes after the start of the school semester were all the killers, especially the flurry of spikes in the two weeks prior to the murders. He was doing his research, like always. At 10.19 p.m., Papa Roger posted the floor plan of the house again and said, Thoughts on this body placement. At 10.46 p.m., he wrote, I feel like the white car isn't relevant. Well, I feel like these posts are coming from someone who drives a white Hyundai Elantra, lost his knife sheath in the commission of the murders, and is obsessively obsessing over this. Clearly, with a flurry of nine posts within one hour and 46 minutes. I think the killer is worried that his car has been identified. Very, very worried, as he should be. His final post of the night, the one about the white car being irrelevant, that's his wishful thinking. Two days later, and one day after the final verbal altercation with the professor with whom the suspect worked for, on December 10th at 11.21 p.m., the suspect, well, if he is Papa Roger, posted, four weeks in and no suspects. What's the motive? The next night, on December 11th at 9.17 p.m., he posted, why was the knife the weapon of choice? At 9.56 p.m., he posted, how long do we think the killer was in the house? Now, on this one, in the comments of his own post, he wrote, that he believed the killer was in there for 15 minutes, which is almost exactly the amount of time that would come out later on in the affidavit that they believe he entered the house at about 4.04 a.m. and then drove away about 4.20 a.m., almost 15 minutes. Another thing only the killer would know. At 10.21 p.m., he posted, do we think the killer took anything from the house? The following evening on December 12th at 7.45 p.m., he posted, What do we think is the height and weight of the killer? Sounds like to me he's trying to figure out what people might know because the fact is the suspect does have somewhat of a tall and lanky kind of appearance with a regular sort of build. So I don't know if it's average he looks a little taller than the average person i'm not sure though but i think he's just trying to figure out if people can tell and what people know 
He's doing his research. At 8.39 p.m., he posted, Is the killer still in Moscow, Idaho right now? The next day, December 13th, at 8.01 p.m., he wrote, The white car is a red herring. Remember, this is also the same day that the suspect's white car was captured on a license plate reader in the city of Loma, Colorado, as he and his father made this trip across the country about 500 miles or 800 kilometers longer than it needed to be by dipping way down south into Colorado in the first place. The 13th of December also marks the one month to the day that the murders took place. So Papa Roger, if he is the suspect, was now safely hundreds of miles away from Pullman and Moscow with his red herring, a.k.a. white car. He posted a lot on December 13th after 8 p.m. And to me, it kind of sounds like that he and dad have probably pulled over at a motel for the night and he's gotten onto Facebook to throw out these random questions, which sounds like a Ph.D. student doing a study on people who are closely following this case. I should say soon to be former Ph.D. student and former teaching assistant. Still on that same evening on December 13th at 8.18 p.m., Papa Roger posted one knife, four people. The killer took a big risk. The knife could have easily broken off or become ineffective after one or two murders. Are we sure there is only one knife involved? I think he's the one throwing red herrings around here. At 9.07 p.m., he posted, If the door was left open or the heat wasn't on, are we sure of the timeline of the deaths? It was 28 degrees at overcast the night of the murders. In Celsius, that would be negative 2 degrees, which sounds really good right now because it is like 111 outside. In Celsius, that's almost 44 degrees. It's hot today. At 9.17 p.m., he posted, Not a new post for me, but still very relevant. How long was the killer in the house? At 9.47 p.m., he wrote, How did the killer leave the scene? did clean up at all. And you notice in that comment that he made, the last sentence that I just said, he made somewhat of a grammatical error by writing, did clean up at all. I thought about that for a minute. And the natural way of saying things in that sentence or those two sentences would have been, how did the killer leave the scene? Did he clean up at all? I think that the poster wanted to say he but left it out to not identify the gender of the killer. Because he had already used the word killer in the first sentence, it would have sounded repetitive if he had said it again, so he decided to just leave it out altogether. What I can see in this series of postings on Facebook is that he is being very careful to not assign a gender to an unknown killer. Just like he's trying to deflect attention away from the white car by calling it irrelevant. What he's doing here is totally distancing himself from the crime as much as he can, if the suspect is the one making the posts. And I mean, it's kind of a moot point anyway, because if he had done his homework in criminology class, the chances are that somebody who went into a house and stabbed four people to death like this is probably male. Not 100%, but most likely. 
At 9.55 p.m., he wrote, Fight me. Law enforcement is no closer to solving this than they were 30 days ago. Yeah, he was hoping that that was the case. Again, more wishful thinking. And what we know at this point is that authorities were only 17 days away from the date of this posting from tossing his sorry ass into the county jail. On December 15th, Papa Roger started posting again after a few days of being quiet. And remember, this is the day that the suspect was pulled over twice in Indiana for tailgating. At 7.25 p.m., if it was the suspect posting, he's probably at another roadside motel with his dad. And he wrote, day 32 and no motive, same as day one. So clearly this guy is counting down the days. At 7.34 p.m., he posted, the killer has a sexual dysfunction. Thoughts? Um, accurate. Somebody gets 10 brownie points for self-awareness. I mean, come on. The killer has a sexual dysfunction? Why would that even be like a thought unless the guy writing the post, who we think is the suspect, has a sexual dysfunction? Oh, that's a little bit TMI, but still, not surprising. I'm no expert, but if I was, I would diagnose this guy with an everything dysfunction. At 8.52 p.m., he posted, The date of the killing was chosen on purpose. Thoughts? At 9.03 p.m., he posted, Any known internet suspect has been eliminated at this point. Fight me. You know, it kind of sounds like he's tired of other people getting credit for his handiwork. And then Papa Roger went quiet for five days. We know that the suspect arrived at his family home the day after the last series of posts on December 16th. So now, if the suspect is Papa Roger, he's become busy with his family. And he may have decided to stop posting in order to prevent his IP address from coming up if he is connected to his parents' Wi-Fi. But he was back at it again in the Facebook group on December 20th. At 8.36 p.m., he posted, Day 37, do we think law enforcement has a motive yet? At 9.06 p.m., he wrote, Ethan didn't live at the crime scene. Very possible the killer didn't know he was there. Thoughts? So now Papa Roger has mentioned two out of the four victims by name, Ethan and Zana. In none of these screenshots did he ever mention Kaylee or Madison. But in those layouts of the house, their bodies are labeled where he believed them to be located at the crime scene. At 9.46 p.m., he wrote, A knife is a very risky weapon if you know you're going to murder four people. Do we think the killer also had another weapon, such as a stun gun or another knife? Or do they not know what they would encounter? Again, here he's avoiding assigning a gender to the killer by referring to him as they. At 9.52 p.m. he posted, Did the killer drive, walk, or some combination of both to the scene? The following day on December 21st at 6.35 p.m., he posted, Regardless of what's been released, I believe that this is a sexually motivated crime. At 9.09 p.m., he posted an image of the floor plan and some pictures of investigators on the inside of the home, and he wrote, I know this won't be popular, 
but this is where I think the victims were found. So in these pictures, he had Kaylee and Madison next to each other on the third floor in the bed, I believe. Ethan is in the living room on the outside of Zana's bedroom on the second floor, and Zana is in her bedroom up against the wall, and the sliding glass door is labeled point of entry. At 10.38 p.m., he posted, can someone post actual evidence showing where the bodies were found? The last screenshots that members of the group had were two posts that Papa Roger made on December 22nd. I don't have the timestamps, but it seems like his pattern is to post at night. On one of the posts, he wrote, the killer is not a student. Thoughts? And on the second post, he wrote, day 39, the killer is not in the victim's inner circle. And with that, as far as I can see, those were the last of the posts. Is Papa Roger, in fact, the suspect? I tend to think so, but a lot of times these things turn out to be red herrings, for lack of a better term. But I tend to think so because the dates of his posts seem to line up with what we know was going on with the suspect, where he was at, and what he was doing at key points in time. Assuming that the suspect and Papa Roger are one and the same, then what I believe happened after December 22nd is what I had alluded to in the first part of the series. His family started smelling a rat in their midst, a jobless, girlfriendless, loser rat that drives a white Hyundai Elantra. His family was becoming very, very suspicious of him. The day after those two traffic stops, the suspect and his dad arrived in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, where the family resided and where the suspect intended to spend the holidays with his family. But to be honest, if he hadn't gotten arrested, I don't think the suspect would have shown his jobless, murdery face back in Washington. But fortunately for us, we don't have to speculate or even care because they got him before he had the chance. When the suspect arrived at home, he started acting weird right away, which I don't even know what that looks like for this guy because weird seems to be his speed. Once he got home, he had his car serviced, according to Dateline and Keith. Seems like a normal thing that you would do after making a long drive like that. But after he was home and he was getting settled, the weird things started happening. And one of those things being that the suspect was wearing latex gloves at all times, everywhere around the house even. He always had latex gloves on. The only reason you would do something like that is either you're a germaphobe or you're a murderer. He might be a germaphobe, but if that were the case, then the latex gloves wouldn't have been a weird thing. That would have been a normal thing for him. And it wouldn't have stood out to his family, which it did, especially to his sisters. In the meantime, while the suspect was working on keeping his fingerprints and his murder cooties to himself at home, which, I mean, he should have been working on that at the murder scene, investigators were out west, getting closer and closer each day to zeroing in on the killer. A big break in the case came when the DNA that they found on the knife sheath that Butterfingers Mick Klutzberger left behind came to be a match to certain family members of the suspect in their genetic database. The genealogy experts were able to provide the names of family members who shared some part of the killer's DNA profile, and that part of the DNA profile matched the guy 
who drove the white Elantra, attending school just across the state border from where the murders took place, and whose cell phone was around the crime scene 12 times before the murders happened. Once they got this information about the DNA, investigators pounced. On December 23rd, authorities applied for and were granted a search warrant for the suspect's cell phone records, and it told an incredible story of the planning that went on leading up to the killings. His phone came and went from Pullman, Washington to Moscow, Idaho 12 times, including the night the murders were carried out. Investigators also, of course, found out that the guy who matched the DNA drove the exact car that was captured in all those surveillance camera videos and images. And that was all they needed to name him as the prime suspect, the only suspect really in the University of Idaho murders. Forensic genealogy takes down another killer. Somebody in his family got curious and did a 23andMe on themselves and found their way onto a public database. They discovered that they had some long lost aunts and uncles and second cousins and oh look, we have a mass murder in the family too. What do you know? I can't even express how satisfying all of this feels in a case that has caused so much devastation. Because the reality is, this case was just a few microscopic skin cells away from growing cold. And that would have been almost as devastating as the loss of these four young souls. And then we get to another one of my favorite parts of the story, told only on Dateline because they have these sources. It was Christmas Eve, and while things should have been all normal with the holiday celebration stuff, the family all back there at the home in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, things were anything but normal. One of the suspect's sisters just could not bite her tongue anymore about what she was seeing in the news and feeling about her brother. She brought up the fact that the suspect was wearing the latex gloves in the house. I mean, he'd been home for eight days by then. So for eight days, he's always wearing latex gloves. Did he not think that that was weird? So she waited plenty long enough to finally say something. She wanted to know what the hell is up with these latex gloves. And while she was at it, she confronted him with something even bigger than that. And apparently, in a very loud way, she pointed out to everyone that when the murders took place in Moscow, her brother was living just a few miles away. And, oh, what do you know? He drives a white Elantra, the exact vehicle that there's a nationwide be on the lookout for. And it's right there parked in their driveway. How excruciatingly uncomfortable must that have been, staring at that car outside the family home, knowing that your brother is probably the one. This sister, she did not mince words. She did not beat around the bush. She told everyone that they needed to seriously entertain the possibility that it's looking like that their son and their brother is the University of Idaho killer. The suspect's dad's first reaction was the one that you would expect from family. There's no way that his son could have done this. But according to this exclusive source, dad was basically the only one. Doesn't seem like mom exactly jumped to her son's defense. In fact, one of the things that the family did next was that they secretly went out to the white Hyundai Elantra and searched it themselves for clues, evidence, or anything out of place or suspicious. But they were unable to find anything incriminating. 
But what they didn't know was that by then, the suspect and his car had been under constant surveillance and authorities were there looking on, standing by powerless to do anything as they watched the suspect clean his vehicle completely out, scrubbing, washing, vacuuming. Anything that he may have carried with him from the murders to his car was gone. And they watched him do it with bleach. And that is just foul. I could not ever in my life imagine cleaning the inside of my car with bleach. I don't care how many murders I commit. I'm not driving around with that nauseating smell in my vehicle. Over the course of the next few days, including Christmas Day, investigators with the FBI had eyes on the family home around the clock. On December 27th, they went diving into the garbage cans outside the family home and retrieved some trash and overnighted it back to Idaho for testing in the labs. The next day, the results revealed that one of the samples that they tested from that garbage came from the father of the individual who had left their DNA on the snap of that knife sheath recovered from the murder scene. In other words, someone inside that house is the dad of the killer. Just three days later, at 1.30 in the morning, dozens of agents from various law enforcement agencies converged on the suspect's family home and made their way inside unannounced. They found the suspect awake at 1.30 in the morning in the kitchen, standing there like a moron with latex gloves on his hands. I mean... <sighs> I never thought anything would be more satisfying than when back in 2018, authorities in California had finally identified the Golden State Killer after so many decades of chasing a ghost, only to find him, a grandpa by then, cooking a roast. And not only was this knucklehead wearing latex gloves, he was separating his trash from the rest of the family into Ziploc bags so he could take it over to the neighbor's trash can. So it kind of sort of sounds like the day that they talked about forensic genealogy that somebody must have ditched class or something because he should have known that they would have been able to identify other family members' DNA and link it back to him. Just dumb. Dumb, dumb, dumb. It sounds like the killer, the suspect, I mean. <laughs> Sorry, it's just a habit. It sounds like he knew that the walls were closing in on him. He just had no clue how close investigators had been to him and for quite some time by then. The same morning that he was arrested, the suspect's apartment in Pullman, Washington was searched, items were seized, and among the things collected were two reddish-brown stains from an uncased pillow, which a presumptive test found to be blood. Whose blood it is remains to be seen. The suspect also appeared in court that morning over in Pennsylvania, at which time he waived extradition, and within a couple days, he was back in Idaho, up in the Latah County Jail. And, of course, this guy is getting letters from female admirers. I will never get that, but the thing that bugs me about it the most is the fact that this is what this guy did this for. Attention. Female attention. Now he's getting it in spades. I don't even want to talk about it beyond just letting you know that this is happening again. You know, the family house was searched and many things were seized. 
And there are a list of those things, but the handwriting, uh, whoever wrote this list, it's so difficult to read that I didn't even want to try to go over it. And I really wanted to, but I just didn't have the patience. However, in the Dateline episode, they didn't want to go over it either because they only pointed out one thing. The one thing that they pointed out that was listed on the item seized were ID cards inside glove, inside box. Those were the only words written. The source that spoke to Dateline elaborated on that and revealed that those two ID cards belonged to two women, not any of the victims in Idaho. They were inside a latex glove and they were hidden inside a box. Because of the way that they were hidden, it just isn't normal. And it leads us to believe that there is really something deeply troubling about this man. And regardless of whether you think he's innocent or guilty or you're just waiting to see, I think that everyone has been made a little bit safer since he's been removed from society, hopefully for good. As of right now, the suspect is set to stand trial beginning October 2nd, 2023. There is a chance that there will be delays, so don't hold your breath just yet for it to all begin on that date. I don't think I will be revisiting this case until the case has been adjudicated and the suspect is on death row. The house on King Road is slated for demolition, but the memories of what happened there on that November night in Moscow will linger for many years to come, if not for all time. I want to thank you all so much for listening to this series. I do want to say that in the more than 300, probably almost 400 various episodes that I've done here on the regular feed, the bonus episodes and Patreon, this is the first time that I've had to re-record an episode because it got lost somewhere. <laughs> I don't know what the heck happened. I just blamed it on Fred, but he doesn't seem to care. I just give him treats and he's fine. It was really weird, but you know, it happens. Maybe it's time for a new computer. I don't know. I'm not techy enough to figure out what went wrong. But anyway, I'm hoping upon hopes to see justice for these four young people and their families and their loved ones very, very soon, sooner rather than later. And don't forget, we do not speak his name. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>